Open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1 this morning. I hope that if you were not here last week, that you had the opportunity to listen to my sermon on the first two verses as I wanted to really give us the historical context of what's taking place. And so if you didn't listen to that, I still encourage you to go back and listen to it just so that you know what's happening contextually here in the book of Jonah. Because I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions and just people not knowing. I mean, to be quite honest, I think that people, when they read the minor prophets in Scripture, kind of just assume that they happen all at the same time. Uh, Jonah happens in 780 B.C. and Nahum happens in 640s. I mean, that's 140 years. And so Jonah is prophesying to the Ninevites to get them to repent. And Nahum, 140 years later, is prophesying judgment upon them. And so they finally are judged. And so listen to that sermon last week if you haven't already so that you can be brought up to speed with what's happening here. Uh, This week's sermon is going to be a lot more in the text. We're just going to walk through the text and and teach the text. I want to be faithful to the story of Jonah um, and see how it applies to our lives as born-again followers of Christ today. And so with that being said, I'm going to read Jonah chapter 1, verses 3 through 16. We'll cover verse 17 next week, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get right in. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish." Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. O God, Lord, we are in desperate need of you to understand this text. Lord, we are in desperate need of you to be able to obey this text. Lord, to be able to apply this text to our lives. Lord, when we read it, it's so easy for us to think, oh man, Jonah, what is he doing? And yet, 
The reality is when we sin, this is what we do. We run from you. God, humble our hearts, soften our hearts. Lord, cause us to to be a people that cry out to you like the sailors, like the people in Nineveh. Lord, give us understanding to your word. Lord, speak through me this morning that they would not be my words but yours. Lord, use me as a signpost to point to Christ. Lord, to give credit where credit is due as you are the hero in this story. Not Jonah, not the sailors, not the big fish. Lord, you and you alone are worthy to be worshipped and praised and studied and prayed to. And Lord, we pray that through this sermon this morning we would know you more. Lord, that we would know you more in an academic sense, but more importantly, Lord, that we would know you in a relational sense. Lord, that we would know you intimately as you desire us to. Lord, that we would grow in our relationship with you. Oh God, be exalted in this sermon. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so we see Jonah, this prophet, is given a command by God. And in verse 3 we read, But Jonah. But Jonah. A contrast to the command in verse 2, linguistically, and this this serves as the opposite picture of what we get in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read about our fate in, as, as human beings, dead in our trespasses and sins, following after the prince of the power of the air. We are like without hope. We are serving Satan. And then verse 4 happens. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. And so what we see in Ephesians chapter 2 is a, is a great contrast. We're dead, we're in rebellion, and then God intervenes. But God. It's two of the sweetest words in all of Scripture, in my opinion. But God intervened. And here we have a great command of God, and then we see Jonah intervene. And it's but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And what we see is God saves and man rebels. You see, thankfully, the sailor's salvation, as well as Nineveh's salvation, doesn't depend on Jonah, but it depends on God. You see, far too often in our lives, we have the same contrast like Jonah does. God gives us a command, whether in his word or through an impression upon our hearts where he is leading us and it is so evident. And we think, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to go the other way. That's what Jonah is doing. God commands, Jonah flees. A big contrast. And where does Jonah go? He flees to Tarshish. Hopefully, there is a map here. And so we see in... uh, Kings, that Jonah is from Gath Hefer, uh, a a place in Israel. And so it says that Jonah goes down to Joppa, it's pretty close, and then flees all the way as far west as possible as, as in the known world to go to Tarshish instead of just going up northeast to Nineveh. And so what we see is Jonah doesn't just leave and go to a, a close a nearby island and, and try to seek refuge, Jonah's thinking, 
If I'm going to escape God, I've got to go as far west as possible. I am going to run. I'm going to flee. He goes all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to get to Tarshish. Well, at least that's his goal. We know from the rest of the story that he doesn't make it there. But that's his mentality. Is I'm running from God. I am going. I am flying. I am see you later. I don't want anything to do with God. I can't stay anywhere near Israel. I am out. And so he flees. He tries to flee as far west as possible from the presence of the Lord. And if you see in that verse, it says from the presence of the Lord twice. <clears throat> Repetition is emphasis. Jonah is not just fleeing going to Nineveh, he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He is fleeing from the will of God. This is absolute, willful rebellion against what God has for him. And this is what we do every single time we willfully sin. We run from God. And we can read this and think that's crazy. What is Jonah doing? But the reality is he doesn't want to do the will of God, so he flees. When we take the word of God and we suppress it, or when we have the conviction from the Holy Spirit and we suppress it, what we're doing is what Jonah is doing, fleeing from the presence of God. To read this and to ignore it is to flee from the presence of God. We see in the garden with Adam and Eve, right when Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They hide. It is human nature to run and it is human nature to hide from God. And what we see Jonah doing here is the exact opposite of what we see the prophet Isaiah doing in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the glory of God. Isaiah is forgiven of his sin. And in verse 8, God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Then I said, Here am I, send me. This is the exact opposite of Jonah's response here. Jonah doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. And we see in 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah was used to prophesy to the people to go rebuild the walls. And Jonah's like, yeah, I'll go do that. I'll go up north and tell them to rebuild the walls. I mean, Aram's defeated. Assyria's over there. They're kind of defeated. They're low. This is an easy task. Hey, guys, you want to go build the wall to make our military unit better and stronger? That's an easy one. Jonah does it, and he takes joy in it. He's a prophet. He goes. He likes that call. But he doesn't like the call to go to Nineveh to tell him to repent. Isaiah, when he's saved, he says, Here am I. Send me. Send me, God, whatever you want. And what we see is we are to be at God's disposal constantly. We are to be at God's disposal constantly. If God says go, we go. If he says stay, we stay. If he says give, we give. If he says serve, we serve. Read, we read. Pray, we pray. We are to be at the disposal of God. And in verses 9 through 10 in Isaiah chapter 6 here, we see the commission to Isaiah. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render their hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then Jonah says, how long? And God says, until I come to judge them. So for the rest of your life, because that judgment doesn't come till later. I mean, how is that for a call? Isaiah gets to go out and preach the gospel and God says, nobody's going to listen to you because I don't want them to because I want to judge them. So nobody's going to listen. Isaiah could be like, God, that seems pretty pointless. 
You sure you don't have anything else for me to do? God's like, no, go. Go. This is my will for your life. And what we see is Isaiah is fully at the disposal of God. You read in Isaiah chapter 20. You know what God says to Isaiah there? He says, go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so going naked and barefoot. God's call for Isaiah's life in Isaiah 20. Be naked and prophesy for three years judgment upon enemy nations. How's that for a calling? So first the call on Isaiah's life is go and nobody will listen to you. You will literally bear zero fruit in your ministry. And then later on in Isaiah 20, go naked, barefoot, afraid into enemy lands and and pronounce judgment upon these people. And Isaiah does. Why? Because he's at God's disposal. He sees the glory of God and he thinks, what else could I do other than serve the Lord? My life has no purpose apart from doing God's purpose for my life. God says go, he goes. Jonah, literally, Jonah knows that God will grant <laughs> repentance to Nineveh. God, or Jonah knows that God will be compassionate to Nineveh. We read in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, after Nineveh repents, Jonah's mad. And he says, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Again, Jonah's Jonah's lack of desire to go to Nineveh wasn't because he was afraid of dying. Like the Ninevites were wicked people and Jonah's fear wasn't, they're going to kill me if I go, God, are you sure? I don't want to lay down my life. Jonah's lack of desire to go to Nineveh was because he hated the Ninevites. He didn't want to see them repent. He didn't want God to have compassion upon them because he knew that if he went to Nineveh, God would have compassion on them and Jonah didn't want that. God's going to have compassion on nobody that Isaiah preaches to. And Isaiah's like, sure God, whatever you want. I'll be the laughing stock. I'll be the weird prophet wandering around naked pronouncing judgment, getting respect from no one. Jonah could have been a hero in man's eyes here. Instead, Jonah flees. Jonah, out of hatred for these people, flees. Runs from the presence of God. What we see in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 is a pretty similar story. Peter's a little better than uh, Jonah. What we see in Acts chapters 10 and 11 is the gospel going to Cornelius. And lo and behold, Peter is where? In Joppa. And so just as Jonah goes down to Joppa to flee from the presence of the Lord, Peter's sitting there in Joppa. And Cornelius has a vision saying that he needs to have Peter, Peter, the great apostle, to come, teach them the gospel. But Cornelius, he's a worshiper of God, it says, but he's not a proselyte, which means he hasn't adopted Jewish practices. And so no Israelite, no Jewish man is going to be able to go bring the gospel to Cornelius because that's despicable. You do not associate with Gentiles. And so Peter... While he's sitting there in Joppa, has this vision three different times in the same night of, of him being able to now all of a sudden eat unclean food. And then he gets it. Oh, people aren't unclean. There's no unclean person. And so he goes obediently, unlike Jonah who goes disobediently, he goes obediently to Cornelius' house. 
to bring the gospel. That's a big deal because in Acts chapter 11, the, the council of the apostles, the other people in Jerusalem are like, you did what? You went to Cornelius' house? A Gentile's house? Peter, are you crazy? The people were so upset. And Peter's like, tell me about it. You think how uncomfortable that was for me? I was the one there. I did it. And he says, but the Spirit of the Lord fell upon them just like he fell upon us at Pentecost. And what we see is God's heart is revealed that he loves and desires all people everywhere to come to salvation. This wasn't just for the Jews. It was for everyone everywhere at all times. It was for the Ninevites. It was for the sailors on the ship. It was for Cornelius and his Gentile household. Jonah hated the Assyrians. Peter thought it was unwise and unholy to associate with the Gentiles. Yet Peter goes obediently and it results in praise and honor and glory. Even for the people in Acts chapter 11, they all glory in the name of God. They find it wonderful. They're like, wow, if the Spirit fell upon them just like he did on us at Pentecost, that really is incredible. Yet we see as we go throughout Jonah, Jonah's miserable. The people in Nineveh repent and Jonah gets his heart even more hardened. God desires that all people everywhere would come to salvation. And honestly, I think that in our selfishness, we deny God this desire by focusing on ourselves rather than those around us. The band Casting Crowns has a song called, If We Are the Body. And in their song, they write, Jesus paid much too high a price for us to pick and choose who should come. We do that as Christians. We act as if we have the right to pick and choose who to come in our selective, in our selective thinking of who we're going to invite to church and who we're going to minister to and who we're going to make disciples of and who we're going to love and who we're going to serve and whom we're going to give to. Since we are the body of Christ, we have duties, and some of those duties include making disciples, as Matthew 28 says, as you are going, make disciples among all nations, teaching them and baptizing them. Are we doing this? As we live our lives, are we doing this? Or are we like Jonah? And when we go to the store, or when we get gas, or we go on vacation, or when we eat at restaurants, we are so self-absorbed that we don't even bother letting people know about the good news of Jesus that he came to save sinners. Jonah in this story doesn't care. But again, thankfully for the sailors, God does. And so do you really desire salvation for all? We've got to ask ourselves that question. Do we really desire all people everywhere to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Or are we just so self-absorbed and focused on myself that I'm going to do what makes me happy? Further on in verse 3, it says, So he went down to Joppa, found the ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah paid the fare. You see, sin costs you something. And sin costs Jonah right here money, but he doesn't care. Because what's Jonah going to do? He's going to get to Tarshish, and then he's going to escape the conviction, escape the presence of the Lord, live in prosperity and comfort, and, and, and just, just this nice, content living far from all Israelites, far, far from God in his mind. He's just going to get what he wants. And so it just costs a little bit of money. I'll pay the fee, I'll take the ship, I'll get over there, and then whew, peace. If you would go to Proverbs chapter 7 with me real quick because sin costs us Proverbs chapter 7 
sin ultimately costs us our lives. In Proverbs chapter 7, verses 6 through 27. Verse 6, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. And so she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, it was, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. And what we read is, this is a picture of wisdom versus sin. Sin painted as the woman of harlotry, and us being the young, naive boy. We're just walking around, and we can listen to, to Lady Wisdom, or we can listen to sin, and sin manifests itself as a really tempting thing. This young, naive boy, and here's this harlot who's beautiful and kisses him and invites him into her home. Skip down to verse 21. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. That's what sin does to us. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are her victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Sin is costly. It will cost you your life. See, Jonah has sin in his heart. What's his sin? He hates the Assyrians. So he has hate in his heart, anger in his heart, murder in his heart, Scripture tells us. And he's racist. I mean, he simply doesn't want these people to come to saving faith. And that sin, it works and it works and it works and it works and then God says, go, and he says, no. No, instead, I'm going to go do what I want to do. I'm going to go to the woman of harlotry. I'm going to go to her house. I'm going to spend time with her. And then he's, gonna, he's thinking to himself, I can just go to Tarshish and it's fine. What he doesn't understand is that sin is going to cost him his life. As we read, he's thrown into the sea to die. You see, sin should cost Jonah his life just like it should cost us ours. But God in his grace for his children doesn't allow it to. As we see later on next week, as if we continue to read the story, God saves Jonah. Not because Jonah deserved it, but because God in his grace saves him. But again, what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31 should serve as a grave reminder for Christians, for professing Christians. Of, of the depths of sin, the weight of sin. It tells us if we go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. And then he says if we sin willfully, what we're doing is we're insulting the spirit of, of, of grace, we're trampling underfoot the Son of God, and we're saying that his blood is unclean. And then that section ends with it's a terrible, 
terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's writing to Christians. He's saying sin has consequences. Sin is costly. Sin costs Jonah a lot here as well as the sailors a lot, which we'll get to. But the reality is discipleship is also costly. Following Jesus is also costly. And so what we're faced with, you're going to pay the cost to someone somewhere. Oftentimes when we pay the cost of sin here on this side of glory, unbelievers, their life is kind of wonderful. It's just blissful. And that's Asaph's problem in Psalm 73. He's like, why do the wicked prosper, God? It's like, they, they paid it. They're waiting eternal damnation. But when we as believers sin, it costs us. It, it convicts us. Um, God disciplines us because he loves us. But discipleship, following Jesus, is also costly. And so if you look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. As Brian spoke this morning in the devotional, discipleship following Jesus is a commitment it's not a convenience. It's a commitment. And here we see the commitment. The cost is denying yourself. Denying yourself. Jonah did not deny himself. Jonah said, I want what I want when I want it, and I'm going to get it. And he left. By God's grace, God intervened and said, nope, you're mine. He doesn't do that for everyone. And it comes a point where he doesn't do that for us sometimes. He gives us over to our own desires, and that's a scary place to be. Scary place to be. And so the cost of following Jesus is you, you give up yourself, you deny yourself. That means your passions, your pleasures, your interests, your will, it's done and gone away with. You no longer follow that. You take up the cross, the cross, the, the instrument of death, which means great suffering, and you follow him at all costs. You obey him, you serve him, you worship him. He is your Lord, he is your master. His life and his leading is now your life and your leading. You are yoked to him. You see, growing up, I wanted to do a lot of different things, and being a pastor was never one of them. Making this little of money was never one of them. In fact, my favorite show on TV is Shark Tank. Like, I love Shark Tank. It's, a, it's this, you got five guys or six guys that are billionaires or millionaires, and they, they have, bring in guys, young entrepreneurs, that, that express their idea to these sharks, and they invest in them, and then everybody's a millionaire. That's my favorite show on TV. And, and now I don't have a money problem, but I still like to watch that show because I wanted to be a young entrepreneur growing up. I did. And in this country, you can do it. I mean, you see all the success stories that come on the Shark Tank. Guys with good ideas, and they make millions and billions of dollars, and then they have whatever they want. That's a pretty appealing life. Like, that's what I wanted to do. Be an entrepreneur. Watch Shark Tank. God does not want me to do that. And now, as I follow the leading of the Lord, I don't want to do that anymore either. That, that life sounds honestly miserable to me. 
I like the nomadic living, the, the being at God's disposal. I mean, my future at Grace Church comes down to a vote in two weeks. I like that. I mean, I, that's kind of exciting for me. It's like, ooh, what's God going to do? There's mystery, right? Like, ooh. Like, I'm, I'm living. I'm renting a room in somebody's house right now. I've lived on people's couches. I stay the night. I've slept in my car. Like, I, I like that. It's fun. That's not for everybody. But, but I like being at God's disposal. And obviously there are times where I am not living perfectly on God's disposal. Where I am like Jonah and I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Where I am, I'm pressed with, yeah, I need to do this and I don't. And instead I hide in my rebellion and in my sin. I suppress the Spirit and it's not good. Everybody's life is different. Discipling or following Jesus is being at his disposal. Right? Every single one of you in the church right now, you could sell everything, give it all to Grace Church, and go do, be missionaries in a foreign country. You could start churches, and you could do that while being disobedient to God. Because God's like, nope, I called you to be a teacher in America. I called you to be a stay-at-home mom in America. I called you to be a garbage man in America. And so there's not a blueprint in God's word for how you are to live in the specific sense. All we see is this. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. That's it. That's going to look differently for you than it is for me. The point is we have to be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus, and we have to be so sensitive to his spirit and his leading that we are willing to, whenever, wherever, he calls to go, we go. And so we don't make decisions based on what we want. We make decisions based on what God wants which means we are a people marked by our imploring of the Lord for how he wants us to give, serve, where he wants us to live, what job he wants us to have, etc. We got to get out of the business of making decisions for ourselves and get into the business of seeking God and how he wants us to make our decisions. This cost actually gives us great gain because we get Jesus forever. We get Jesus now and so despite what happens, we get Jesus now, and then we get Jesus forever. In David Platt's foreword of Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of God, which is a book about Christians who paid the cost of discipleship to follow Jesus, Platt writes, I hope and pray that as you read the pages ahead, you will find yourself more cognizant of the needs of the world, more confident in the word of God, and more committed to making his word known throughout the world, no matter what it costs you. Because you realize that God's reward is far greater than anything this world could ever offer you. Simply put, everyone pays for what they want. If you want ease, sin, and self-worship, you'll pay like Jonah and you'll run from God's will for your life. What was he thinking? He could have a nice, comfy, and prosperous life in Tarshish. That's probably what he was thinking. If you want Jesus, it'll cost you your own will as well as your own life. But church, this cost is well worth it. For even if you lose everything on this side of glory, you have Jesus, the sweetest gift for all of eternity, including now as he fuels your discipleship and your desire to lay down your life for him. Let's go back to Jonah. In verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. In case you forgot, God is in control. God is sovereignly reigning and ruling, and he controls the wind, he controls the storm, and he is doing this. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm. Why? 
Well, if you look at Job chapter 37, verse 13, where it talks about God controlling the weather, it says, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Well, why is God causing this storm to happen? For correction, he's getting the attention of Jonah and the sailors. Storm. Now, God causes every storm, every storm, everything weather-related God does for correction or for his world or for loving kindness. Those are his three reasons why he does everything controlling the weather. Here, it's for correction. And this isn't just any storm, but this is a great storm, a great wind, uh, a storm so intense that the sailors know that this is not just an average storm, but that this is from a God of sorts. Now, a couple of parallels in this verse. First, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, we see another storm that Jesus causes. And in Matthew 8, 23 through 27, the scripture reads, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What we see is Jesus is better than Jonah. Far, far better than Jonah. You see, Jesus, or Jonah's sin in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's sin is what causes the storm. Right? God, God brings the storm in to correct Jonah, but it's Jonah's sin and rebellion towards God that brings this storm in. So God is disciplining them. What we see is here is Jesus has the power to calm the storm. Who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, if these guys would have known their Old Testament scriptures, they would have known that surely this must be the Lord our God. And what we see too is that Jesus is sleeping. Well, in the account of Jonah, who else is sleeping? Jonah. Jonah's sleeping. Jonah's sleeping out of apathy. Jesus is sleeping out of peace. Jesus has God. He's literally the one controlling the storm. Jesus is at perfect peace while his disciples are freaking out. And why are they freaking out? Because they have no faith or little faith. Jonah's sleeping because he doesn't give a rip about the people on the boat. And nor does he give a rip about his life. He's sleeping out of apathy. He doesn't care if all of, all of them die. In fact, that'd be easier. Whew! I'd rather die than go give the gospel to the Ninevites, is what Jonah is thinking. And what results? We see salvation in both. Because salvation belongs to God. We see these disciples recognize, oh, this Jesus is worthy to be followed. This Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. They're men of little faith that their faith grows. And in the story of Jonah, the sailors, they don't know God at all. They're pagan worshipers. They're polytheistic worshipers. They, they worship many gods and they don't care who's God. They just want a God to rescue them. And by the end of the story, they worship the true God. So salvation comes of it. Despite Jonah's sin, salvation will come upon the sailors. And another parallel in Acts chapter 27, Paul is being transported to Rome I don't have these verses on the screen, but Paul's being transferred to Rome and he's going by ship. And Paul says early on, he's, he's with 276 men, I think it says. And Paul is just an ordinary guy at this time. He's, he's on a ship with a bunch of pagans. None of them worship God. Paul's just this ordinary Christian man getting transferred to Rome so that he can speak in front of Caesar. 
And he says before they head out, hey, guys, I don't think we should go. Storm's going to get a little stormy. And they say, <laughs> Paul, what does this guy know, huh? He doesn't know anything. We're going to go. And they go on ahead, and then boom, great storm comes in. Now the sailors are freaking out, and they do what these, these sailors do in Jonah. They're throwing off cargo. They're trying to lighten the load so that the, sink doesn't, so that the ship doesn't sink. And then God comes to Paul through the angel of the Lord, and he says, no one will die as long as you stay on board, as long as you stay on the ship. Well, we see later on, there's a temptation. They're like, send out the lifeboats, let's go. And Paul's like, no, don't. If you want your life to be spared, you will stay. Stay here with me, who's in the presence of the Lord. And so what we see, the parallels, is Jonah, Jonah's being cast into the sea, is why the sea is calmed. Yet Paul's presence and their obedience to him as he obeys God is what keeps them safe. Paul is better than Jonah. In both instances, massive fear. But God is in control. He knows what he is doing. And through his providence, people are saved. Verse 5 in Jonah chapter 1. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen asleep. The men are afraid. Why? Because our sin affects other people. Our sin affects other people. Our sin is not just an isolated incident that affects us. Our sin affects other people. And God is making everyone pay for Jonah's actions. To quote one of the commentaries, God is prepared to break up this ship, drown Jonah, and let all of these idol-worshipping sailors perish, all in response to Jonah's rebellious actions. And it isn't unjust because they're idol worshipers. Like, these men on the ship deserve to die, too. Like, like we look at Jonah and we're like, man, he's rebelling against the Lord. So are the sailors. Like, they don't worship God. Jonah has a knowledge of God that he is blatantly rebelling against. But if these sailors were to die in the storm, they'd all go to hell. Like, they're just as rebellious as Jonah is. So God has every right to do what he's doing to this ship and to the sea. They all should die. They all deserve death. Remember, there is never actually an innocent person. When God punishes or disciplines for sin, he is always justified because everyone deserves hell. You can look at every great disaster, whether it be 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina, and we look at all the people that we call them the innocent lives that die. And we ask ourselves, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And the reality is there's no good people. There's just bad people. The only good person was Jesus. That's it. And he came to die and suffer on our behalf so that we don't have to. And so in any great disaster, whether it's Katrina or 9-11 or Hiroshima, whatever it is, that is God's mercy upon those who are saved, for they get to be with Jesus Christ forever and all of eternity, and it's God's judgment upon the wicked. They deserve hell. Their time is up. They didn't repent. They didn't worship God. It's a tragedy, of course, because many lives are lost that will forever be separated from Christ. That's why we should have all the more urgency to go give the gospel to everyone. We should be making disciples wherever we go. Because when God does stuff like this, he is completely justified in doing so. Our sin affects other people. You see, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, David rebels against God and, 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 and numbers the people. We're told that David should not number the people, and he does number the people. Why? Why? Because he, he wants to take a census so that he can see how big his army is. 
And there, Joab, his commander, is even like, David, I don't think you should do this. And he's like, no, do it anyways. And Joab's like, fine. And what happens? We see in verse 14 that God sends pestilence upon the Israelites and kills 70,000 of them. 70,000 people die because of David's sin. That's insane. Our sin affects others. For instance, for all of you who are kids and who have sporting events, if you disobey, sometimes your parents will be like, fine, you can't go to the sporting event, you can't play in tonight's game. Well, now your disobedience puts all the other members on the team, or it affects all the other members of the team. You could be the star player on the team, and you disobeyed against your dad, and your dad says, nope, you're not playing tonight, and now your team suffers because of your sin. Right? If the parents commit a crime, and now they go to jail, does that affect the family? Yep, absolutely. Even though the kids had nothing to do with it, it affects the family. Adultery, same thing. And, just in general, how sin hardens our heart and makes us worse to be around. When we sin, we are worse to be around. And sin hardens our hearts, and then we end up manifesting the fruits of the flesh rather than the fruits of the Spirit. And you think that affects people? Yeah, absolutely. Because it says in Scripture that they are to know us by our love. Well, if we're in constant sin, are people going to know us by our love? No. They're going to know us by our sin. What we see in verse 5, too, is that every man cries to his God. We see this all the time. Whenever someone is going through a trial, even if they don't worship God, they're not Christians, they ask for prayers and then offer prayers up. As if somehow whatever deity they are imploring or praying to is going to step in and rescue them. I see it all the time. Sometimes our God, little g, is ourselves, lawyers, money, friends, etc., We find gods everywhere. Who we cry out to in times of trouble is our God. Are we people that cry out to Yahweh or are we people that try and solve things on our own? And maybe we cover it up with, I don't don't want to burden God with this thing. It's little. He's he's busy doing other things. Well, now we've committed idolatry and we said that I, I actually can do it. I can do it better even. When we don't seek the Lord and his leading, we make ourselves God. I had a Bible school teacher named Dr. Job Martin. The Danielsons know him. And this guy, I loved him. He's this old, crazy man. And he, he's big on creation and evolution, and that's what he was teaching us on. And this man is so prayerful. Him and his wife and their two daughters, their daughters have pledged celibacy, essentially. They are, they are in their 40s, and they're single, and they just travel around with their parents in a van, and they preach at different conferences and, and teach people the good news of Jesus Christ. And they are prayer warriors. He would teach our class, and he would start every class with prayer. He'd end every class with prayer. But every single time something happened, whether people were noisy and disruptive, he'd stop and pray. Or if the PowerPoint went out, he'd stop and pray. I mean, every single time something happened, he stopped and prayed immediately. You'd think if that goes out, we'd stop and be like, hey, Brad, can you figure that out? Can you fix it? Not Job. Job was like, let's pray. And it always redirected our hearts and our minds back to Christ, the one who is sovereignly reigning and in control. It was so encouraging. In verse 5, we see those two dreadful words again. But Jonah. Here's the contrast. Here's the, the stormy sea and all the pagans, they're crying out to their God. Well, what is Jonah doing? Is he crying out to his God? 
Nope, he's sleeping. He's sleeping. Is he a hero? No, he's selfishly doing his own thing again. You see, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, the author of Hebrews says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jonah is so hardened by his own sin right now that he doesn't care if everyone perishes. He would rather die in his sleep. Verse 6, so the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. You can hear the desperation, and rightfully so. They are going to die, and they are well aware that this isn't a normal storm, but one sent by a God. And so they need some sort of deity to step in. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Lots. Casting lots is a pagan practice that even the Jews would sometimes use. It's much similar to rolling dice for answers. It's like, if I get a six, I'll do this. All right, that's, that's the picture that I can give you. And lo and behold, the lots say it was Jonah who was to blame. Imagine that. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Despite this being a pagan practice performed by pagans to get an answer from their pagan god, God intervenes, steps in, controls the decision of the lot, and says, it's Jonah. God knows what he is doing, and Jonah is starting to realize that he can't outrun God. God is on the throne, not Jonah. It wasn't by chance that the lot fell on him, but it was by the very providence of our sovereign Lord. And for Jonah, it was a blessing in disguise. Because conviction and discipline from God are a blessing. If we suppress conviction to the point where we aren't convicted anymore about things, that's not good. God disciplines those whom he loves, and right now in this story, he is disciplining Jonah to save the sailors, to save the Ninevites, and ultimately to save Jonah too. If God didn't care, he would hand him over to his own desires, just like we read in Romans 1. If Jonah wasn't God's instrument, he'd say, okay, Jonah, leave, go to Tarshish. You think God needs Jonah? God could have raised up a different prophet to go preach to the Ninevites. But God has his heart set on Jonah. And it is a blessing that God has the lot fall upon him. It is a blessing that God has the sailors send him into the sea to be swallowed by a big fish. Because it is a blessing when tragedy comes in our lives as a result of our sin to get our attention off of ourselves and back onto God. Because if God hands us over to our own desires, our hearts will be hardened and hardened and hardened and hardened to where we're no longer convicted by sin anymore at all. That is a horrible place to be. A horrible place to be. One of the marks of assurance of salvation is that you are continually convicted by your sin. If you get to a point where everything just seems blissful and wonderful and you're like, man, I don't really know how I sin or how I struggle. That's a bad spot to be. Conviction and discipline from the Lord are a blessing. In verses 8 through 10, they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to them, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They say, Who are you? He says, I fear Yahweh, the creator of the land and the sea, the one true God. I don't serve your false gods, and yeah, I'm running from God. These pagan sailors are like, uh, how could you do this? They don't even worship the true God, and they're like, are you a moron? Like, what? 
They aren't even saved and they realize the seriousness of the sin of Jonah. And again, we just don't even see repentance. I mean, we see Jonah being honest here. He's like, I, I fear the Lord and I'm running from him. But he's not repentant. He's just honest. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. In verses 11 through 13, they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. You see what, see what the sailors are doing here? They're asking the very man that shouldn't be asked anything because he's a moron running from the will of God. And they're asking him, what, what do we do to you? Because it's not, it's not Jonah's wisdom that they're after, it's God's. They're like, oh, you serve the one true God, the one who's in heaven reigning and ruling, who's causing this storm to happen? Forget our pagan gods. Dude, what do we got to do? They don't care about Jonah's wisdom, they care about God's. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. They are interested in the storm being stopped so that their lives may be spared. And I can't stop help thinking about the jailer in Acts chapter 17 we're in the midst of chaos and destruction and he's thinking, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to lose my life. As, as the prisoners, he's thinking, are free. But they're not. And Paul cries out to him and he says, no, we're still here, don't worry. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? That's the heart of the sailors right now. What must I do to be saved? Jonah tells them to throw him over. But this isn't noble. It's a further hardening. If this was noble, Jonah would cry out to God in repentance, fall to his knees and cry out, God, I am sorry, I have done this, I have brought this upon our people. If you look at David in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, that's David's response. Again, it's David's sin that causes pestilence on the land. And look at the response of David in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 17. David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O oh Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not, against your in but not against your people that they should be plagued. We see a humble, repentant heart. God, punish me, not them. And you're like, we can kind of see that in Jonah because Jonah's like, throw me over. Jonah doesn't care. He's not repentant. Because then what we see in David, in his heart, is in verse 21. David came to Ornan. Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. David says, I need to make a sacrifice unto the Lord. And Ornan, he goes to Ornan, and Ornan says, take whatever you want. And David says, no way. He says in verse 24, but King David said, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. David says, in order for me to be right with the Lord, I need to cost, it needs to cost me something. It needs to hurt. It has to come from me. And what we see in Jonah is Jonah doesn't care. He let the sailors throw off the cargo. He doesn't care. He's sleeping. And he says, yeah, throw me overboard. But he's not repentant. He just wants to further run from the Lord. And he's saying, I know if you throw me in, the sea will stop because God's mad at me, not you. Which is true. And the sea does stop when he's thrown in. 
But Jonah's heart isn't, I want to save these people. Jonah's heart is, I deserve to die. I want to die. Just kill me. Throw me in. When we sin, we ought to cry out to the Lord and receive his forgiveness. Not harden our hearts and hide and try exterior methods to cover the pain. Jonah here, despite it looking like a noble self-sacrifice, is actually a coward who instead of faces God, he runs from him. However, the men did not want to throw him over. After all, these guys are well aware of the fact that they are in the middle of a battle between the prophet of God and the one true God. And they do not want his blood on their hands as seen in the next verse. In verses 14 through 16. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sailors pray and they obey and they cast Jonah into the sea. The sea stops its raging immediately. They fear the Lord greatly. This is even greater terminology than Jonah uses about himself in verse 9. It says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 16 says, the men feared the Lord greatly. They have a greater fear. Jonah's like, I fear him, but I don't really care because I'm rebelling from him. Throw me in, it doesn't matter. And these people are like, I don't want to throw you in. I fear God. Are you sure? Okay, God, we're going we're gonna to trust you. We're going to obey. We're going to throw Jonah in and the sea stops. And because of it, they fear God greatly. They make sacrifices. These would be sacrifices out of thanksgiving and probably offerings up of their sin because they already received the stillness of the storm. So they've already made the sacrifice to still the storm. Jonah's in the sea. What more do they have to sacrifice? Thanksgiving. They're, they're giving praise to God. They're offering up for their sin, they recognize that they're sinners who are also like Jonah in rebellion towards God, and they make vows, i.e., they say, I will follow you. What does this signify? Well, when we get saved for the first time, it is because a great fear and reverence for God has come upon us where we see Him as the one true God, the only one worthy to be worshipped and lived for, and therefore we sacrifice ourselves and our own desires to follow Him through the laying down of our own lives. As again, Matthew 16, 24 says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then we vow through baptism, which is our public declaration of our faith. We say, I am following Jesus. I am making this vow to follow Jesus. What does this signify for us as believers convicted of our sin? Well, when we sin now and we are convicted of it, we ought to be reminded of the holiness of God and how in our sin we grieve the Spirit and are not living pleasing lives to Him. Then like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10, through he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What's he talking about? First Corinthians was a pretty harsh letter. But he's writing to people who profess to know Christ. He's writing to people who are saved. And so this salvation that he talks about, that the repentance produces, isn't justification, but it's sanctification, which is the proof of our justification. 
Because in 1 Corinthians, they're saved. They're just rebelling against God in all these different ways. And so Paul gives him a rebuke. He says, stop that. And then in 2 Corinthians, he's like, I'm sorry that I, made, that, I, that I hurt you, but I'm also not sorry because that sorrow that you had produced repentance, which is good. That's what it should do in us. When we go to the word of God and we're rebuked or reproved or church leaders do it or people, your friends, your brothers, your sisters in Christ do it to you, that's a good thing. It's going to hurt, but it's good if it produces repentance. And so obviously if we don't repent, that also has implications. As Paul says, the sorrow of the world produces death, meaning that when we sin and we are convicted, that conviction works itself out in godly sorrow to bring us to repentance to prove our salvation rather than being mopey like Jonah leading to death. Thankfully for Jonah, God doesn't kill him, but gives him more time for godly sorrow to work. For us, then, let us, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Then finally, once we repent like the sailors, let us make vows, which in our context as born-again believers is to renew the covenant, in a sense, with God through coming to him in prayer, through reading of the word, through church worship, and one that is often taken for granted, the eating of the Lord's Supper as that is to be a covenant renewal for us where we lay ourselves down at the altar out of a grateful remembrance for his sacrifice so that we might have abundant life and declare by the power of the Spirit that we will live for him as he lives in us. Therefore, church, to close, if there is obvious sin in your life, cut it off and cut it out. Don't run like Jonah or hide like Adam and Eve. Repent. Turn to Jesus, receive the forgiveness he promises to give you, and like the sailors, make sacrifices of thanksgiving and a lifelong commitment to follow him as you look to him, the only one worthy to be looked upon, the only one worthy to be lived for, the only one worthy to be worshipped, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord, you are so good. So good. Lord, your goodness is seen all throughout this book. Lord, as despite the sinful rebellion of Jonah, Lord, he is an instrument of yours where you are using, and you are disciplining him, and you are convicting him, and you are bringing him back, Lord, so that you may save him, so that you may save the sailors, so that you may save the Ninevites. Lord, we thank you for saving us, for loving us, for dying for us for continuing to discipline us, even though it seems painful sometimes. But Lord, you do it out of love to bring us back, to reorient our hearts and our minds, to focus on you, God. God, I pray that your word was taught well and accurately today. Lord, that your spirit would apply these things to our lives. Lord, that you would increase in us a greater yearning, a greater desire, Lord, for you. As we can all look back and think about when you saved us and our zeal for you and it was how exciting it was like the sailors here. They're making sacrifices and vows and they fear you greatly. God, bring us back to that fear and increase that fear. A reverent fear. One that longs to worship you, longs to serve you, longs to live for you by the power of you. God, exalt yourself in our lives. Thank you so much, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.